The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 13, please, as I substitute again for Brother James. We are taking some different material here to spend some time looking at, and I just have a little message on John chapter 13. It's actually just the first portion of it. I plan to, if I have opportunity, to work on this chapter at greater length uh, with you. It's the opening chapter, as you know, of what's commonly called the upper room discourse, right? Uh, Through chapter 17. So 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, ending with the high priestly prayer, as we call it. And then in chapter 18, the Gospel of John transitions to the uh, arrest, the trial, uh, betrayal, arrest, trial, and all that of the Lord. Actually, the betrayal is indicated here in chapter 13 also. Uh, and then beyond that to the resurrection and, or the crucifixion and the resurrection. But our focus is on John 13. And I have outlined John 13 in five sections. Let me see if I can give those to you in a couple different formats. Uh, I decided to uh, give two outlines or make, write two outlines for myself uh, of the same text. One is maybe what you call more of a narrative outline. It outlines the major events in the chapter. And the other would be more of an applicational kind of outline, drawing the key truth out of each section and then uh, calling that out as the heading for that section by outlining it. So under the first uh, type of outline, the narrative outline, I have washing of the disciples' feet, an example of service. An example of service by washing the disciples' feet. That's in verses 1 to 17 of the chapter. And then another fairly lengthy section in verses 18 to 30. And this is the betrayer predicted and revealed. The betrayer predicted and revealed. 13, 18 to 30. Our focus, uh, Lord willing, this morning will just be on that first 17 verses and we'll see how far we get. It might touch on verses 18 to 30. And then 31 to 33 speak about Jesus' imminent departure. So Jesus announces that He's going to leave very soon in 31 to 33. And He indicates to them that when He does that, they will seek Him and they will not be able to go where he is going at that particular time. And that's going to come up again in the last section of the chapter, which we'll look at in just a second. The uh, fourth section of the chapter, so let me review again. So you have the washing of the disciples' feet up to 17. You have the betrayer predicted and revealed, 18 to 30. Jesus announces his imminent departure, 31 to 33. Then the new commandment to love one another, the new commandment, 34 to 35, the new commandment to love one another. And then finally, Peter wishes to follow Christ, but he will fall. That's the prophecy that the Lord gives. He will fall, 36 to 38, and that rounds out the chapter. I said it connects back to um, verses 31 to 33 because you notice in 30, uh, 33, where I am going, you cannot come. And then in 36, Jesus said again, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. 
So Peter, you know, says, hey, look, I'm going to follow you now. But Jesus says, no, you cannot do that. It's not possible for you to do that right now. And I think we can sort of have an intuitive understanding of why that is. Peter wants to go with the Lord, but where's the Lord going? He's going to go to heaven ultimately here within the next days. And that's not God's plan for the disciples. His plan for the disciples is rather the Great Commission. So they've got to hang around and, uh, and be patient and wait for the time when they will go to be with the Lord. Now, if you were to take the outline that you just jotted down in your notes and then off to the side maybe you could write under the, on the same lines the application of these. And that's where my applicational outline comes in. So for verses 1 to 17, I understand that God is trying to tell us that we must follow the Lord's example of humble service. He uh, gave an example of service in the narrative, but He's encouraging us to do that to one another. So, follow the Lord's example. Under the second heading, I, it's maybe a little more difficult to figure out what to do with this because we don't want to think of an application of Judas to us or to us collectively, but I thought of it this way. I, I may seem close to Christ and yet not be a Christian. You think about Judas. He was close to Christ and from outside an outsider's perspective it would say look Judas is right with those other 11 he's one of the 12 he's been with the Lord there doesn't seem to be anything externally that distinguishes him from them of course when you're a little bit at a distance you might not be able to observe but I wonder if the other disciples did observe huh Judas seems a little disconnected he seems a little different uh, and of course, they learned later that he was a thief. You know, he was an embezzler out of the treasury, and uh, that was just another kind of evidence of or strike against him. But it is possible for people to seem close to Christ and yet not be Christians at all. And uh, when persecution comes, or when an opportunity comes to betray their quote-unquote brothers, they'll take that opportunity. And that's a sad reality very sad reality something that i've kind of you know dreaded myself like you know who who in the community or even who in the loosely associated with the church is going to cause trouble like you know during covid for example tattle on the church you know they're not all doing the social distancing perfectly or whatever and they can blow things out of proportion and make it you know a, a mess out of it um, that's not you know, that's not something that I savor uh, to, to have trouble caused for the church. We're just trying to worship God as we always have for, uh, well, here for going on 41 years next summer, or 40 years next summer. So, nothing new here. It's all the same. <clears throat> um, and then, fourthly, or thirdly, um, in verses 31 to 33, Jesus said, You cannot come now. Uh, we have to wait to be with Christ. We have to wait to be with Christ. Um, you know, I, I think maybe it would be helpful for me just to pause and share with you a thought that I've had about the passing from this life to the next. Uh, you know, it's as natural as anything for people to die, right? I mean, natural meaning it just is the course of nature. And it it obviously causes us grief and difficulty and 
and sadness and sorrow and all of that. But I think we have to realize as Christians, our hope is different than that of the world. In the world, I mean, it's the end, isn't it? Well, they kind of have this idea of Christianized idea that they've gone, you know, their loved ones have gone to a better place, right? It's always to a better place. Nobody ever seems to go to a worse place, you know, except for like Hitler and those guys, you know, they're the really bad ones. They they deserve the bad place, but uh, so, but we, I think it's helpful for us to stop and think when we're not in the midst of the grief of that, to remind ourselves that we need to think about passing like maybe like some of the Old Testament saints, you know, they would. Just say, look, I'm getting old. I'm going the way of all the earth. I want to be gathered to the fathers. That's all. I mean, it's, it's, it's not good, but it's the way it is. And uh, Jesus is kind of you know, touching on something related to that. Like, it's okay. You're, you're not going to see that person for a while if they're a believer, a true believer in Christ. But you shall. And that's all right. You know, uh, patience. You just have to wait. So I have to wait to be with Jesus and uh, just you know, look at passing in a way that says, okay, how are we going to go through this both on the side of the living and the side of the dying? How are we going to go through this in a way that honors God and in which we die well for the Lord? So we must work on that. Fourthly, my, uh, regarding the new commandment to love one another, our faith is to be evidenced when we love one another ourselves. So, the, I don't know if I can explain what I'm trying to show to you. There are two ways to outline the passage. One, just say what happened in the, in the, in the narrative. Two, how does it apply? So, in other words, lift that up to our current day and say, okay, what do we have to do about that? And then finally, denying Christ like Peter is a possibility. So, I have to be humble. I think Peter was a little overconfident, wouldn't you say? I'll go with you wherever. You know, uh, I'll never deny you. And so said all the disciples. You know, see, we, Peter gets the bad rap, but the fact of the matter is they probably were all of the same mind and Peter was the spokesperson. You know, there's always somebody in the group that's got the biggest mouth and uh, says what everybody's thinking, right? And uh, I'm not trying to be, you know, negative, but just... That's how Peter was and very impetuous. And, but we learn from Peter that it is a real possibility that we could deny Christ. And we don't want to do that, but we have to be humble about it. Now, let's look at 13, 1-17. Let me just read it here for us and then we'll carry on with a little more detailed study. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil already having put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into His hands and that He had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? 
Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. There's a little bit more of that. Um, Speak it right out, what you're thinking. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. By the way, uh, recently, uh, within the last month, I did a post on the church website on my blog that deals with verses that are like that. There are a bunch of verses that talk about the blessing of obedience. Uh, Revelation 1.3, Blessed is he who reads and hears and keeps the words of this prophecy. Um, or Matthew chapter 7 at the end, the guy who is wise builds his house on a rock. He's the one who hears the word of God and keeps it. And so there a number of passages are listed there for you to uh, look at sometime if you want kind of a devotional format there for you to just ponder on. So Jesus uh, washes the disciples' feet here. Now, I have a number of points, I don't know how many, maybe six or seven, that follow this format. Jesus' humble service arises out of love for his disciples. So each of these statements will be like Jesus' humble service something. Here, it arises out of his love for the disciples. John comments that Jesus knew that he was about to leave the world. He knew that the time was at hand for his self-sacrifice, for his death, for his burial, for his resurrection and his departure from heaven. And all I can say when I think of that is it's hard to believe. I mean, I mean it's not hard to believe, it's hard to think about. You think about him knowing all that was about to happen to him. No wonder he sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, was, he knew the torture that he was going to go through. It's almost a mercy to people who don't know what they're going to go through. He knew. And uh, the anxiety that would come upon someone who knew in advance what they were going to have happen. That's kind of like sometimes you hear uh, a doctor who is sick The doctor who is sick suffers in a way different than the person who's not a doctor because he knows what's coming. You know what I mean? Like he knows the course of the cancer, he knows the course of the heart problem, he knows knows too much, we say. So that's a challenge to think about. He knew all of that. And yet knowing that, I mean you could easily retreat into total depression and self-centeredness if you knew what was going to happen to you like that. And notice what the Lord did. It says He loved these men. He had loved them in a spiritual and wholesome way. He had concern for their spiritual development. 
their understanding of the truth. He wanted them to escape from the clutches of sin and get them to focus their lives on winning others by becoming fishers of men. That's what he's doing in his, in his ministry. The text tells us that uh, having loved his own who were in the world, notice the last phrase in verse 13, he loved them to the end. To the end. What does that mean? I don't think this means or refers to the timing of his love. We've just been told that he's about to leave. We know that he's loved them all the way through his life and ministry to them. It's not the timing that it's, you know, he loved them right up to the very last moment, but it's that he loved them to a certain extent. He loved them in a complete and perfect way. He loved them to the very max that he could do. You know, you see that when I you when you use the word end, the the end of the matter, not the it's the completion of it, not the timing of it that is at issue here. To a point of fullness, he displayed his love to the full extent for them by showing them an example of humble service in washing their feet. And then, of course, he showed them an even more stupendous example of humble service by doing what? By dying for them. Philippians 2.5 Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although He was in the form of God, did not consider it to be something to be grasped or held on to, but gave it up. Came as a humble servant in the form of a servant and the likeness of men and died on the, even the death of a cross. Humble service and washing feet and subsequently humble service, even more humble, lowly, humiliating service and dying for the disciples. Just uh, something to think about again for us. So Jesus' humble service was done out of love for the disciples. Secondly, Jesus' humble service was done even for the benefit of Judas, I believe. Verse 2 mentions that the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knew who it was who was going to betray him, but it doesn't tell us, or tells us that it was later in the meal that, or later in the evening that Judas left. Judas was at the Last Supper for at least part of it, and there's some debate about whether he took the, you know, the bread and the cup, or whether he, his feet were washed or whatever. It seems from this that he was. It's not the most important point, but I think it does highlight that Jesus washed not only 11 pairs of feet, but also the betrayer's pair of feet. How do you think, if that is the case, how do you think Judas felt sitting there having his feet washed by the man who, whom he was about to betray? He should have felt utter humiliation and embarrassment. I don't think he had the right emotions about it, but he must have been somehow conflicted. I mean, later on, he threw away the money, right? And went and hanged himself because he knew he had done something terribly wrong. The son of perdition. 
So even for the benefit of Judas, and even if that is not quite correct, Jesus spent three plus years with this man, ministered to him, loved him, and this this betrayal is what he got for it. Jesus also thirdly offered humble service even though he was going to God. It says that, verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. I mean, do you get that? That, that? that he had given all things into his hands? He'd come from God and he was going to God? He had given him and would give him again all authority in heaven and on earth, Matthew 28 tells us. He had the authority to lay down his life and to take it again. John 10.18 says as much. No one takes it, my life, from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. He has that kind of authority. You and I don't have that kind of authority. We'd, we'd like to have it, I suppose, but we don't. We don't just lay our life down and take it up again as we will. Our lives are in the hands of God, not in, not in our own hands. But this is Jesus saying, I've come from God, or knowing that He had come from God, that He's going back to God, that all this has been delivered into His hand, and yet still, He's going to gird Himself with a towel and wash the disciples' dirty and stinky feet. He was the greatest man who ever lived. And here he was, going to be the lowest on the totem pole. Somebody should have taken the task, but evidently there were no other servants there willing to do so. And I don't know if there were some of the disciples... Uh, the women with them, or this was just the men? I don't know exactly. If it were more, I, I wonder if our, in our mind we're thinking Jesus washed 12 pairs of feet when actually He might have washed some more. Who, who served the table? Was it just the men or were there the, some of the disciple ladies with them as well? And did He wash everybody's feet? I don't know. But His humble service was in stark contrast. This is number four on our list. His humble service was in stark contrast to that of the disciples. Peter didn't take up the basin to wash the disciples' feet. James and John didn't do it. Matthew, Levi didn't do it. The son of Alphaeus didn't do it. None of these guys did it. In fact, let's go to Luke 22. Luke 22:21 This tells us what the disciples <clears throat> were doing about this time. Jesus said, "But behold, the and this is Luke 22:21, but behold the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the son of man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed." Then they began to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing? And so, so far, you think, okay, this is good. Everybody's, this is sober-minded. It's fine. Look at verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. 
And Jesus took the opportunity to talk about the Gentiles and how they exercise authority and benefactors and you know hierarchies of power and that sort of thing. And the disciples were arguing about who is going to be the greatest, and Jesus was thinking about washing the feet of the disciples. How far, how much farther apart could their brains have been than they were? The Lord is about to wash their feet. How embarrassing it should have been, hopefully, for them as they considered the sober timing of the moment. That they're thinking about who is going to be the greatest after they're thinking about who is going to betray the Lord. And the Lord expresses His deep love for them as they talk about their petty disputations. By the way, the Bible tells us that the disciples had argued about this very same thing months earlier. In Mark 9 and 10, there is a record of them doing this earlier than the Lord's table time. So they have fallen into a a problem. You remember James and John came to Jesus and asked, we'd like to have the right hand and the left hand of your throne in your kingdom. And then the other disciples were upset at them for this. And Jesus is thinking about washing their feet. Don't they understand? Don't we understand? That Jesus' humble service is an example for us and we need to be humble servants as well. Their greedy sinfulness for place, position, and power was completely out of place for ones who should have been thinking of humble service. And then in verses 4 and 5, this is number 5 on my list, Jesus' humble service was displayed in a necessary but lowly way. This is the actual washing of feet. He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. So he took up the stance and the attire of a servant. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. I think some rich symbolism there. I'm not going to get into it here or speculate about it, but just think about how the Lord did that. The common footwear of the day was a sandal of some description. It wasn't fancy or advanced like what we might think of today, but it certainly seems to have had an open design to it. It wasn't a closed-in shoe. And so one's feet would become very dirty walking on the dirt roads and paths and the fields all the time. No roads were paved as we know pavement today. Some of the Roman roads were, quote, paved with stones. They had very interesting engineering where they would even slope the roads to get the water off. They'd have drainage ditches on the side. They'd have flat stone surfaces for some of the roads. But you can imagine that even those would not be very clean. I mean, they didn't have street sweepers, machines like what we have now. So that would be, uh, that could be a very dirty situation. Dirty feet were common and it was a part of the practice of hospitality that a servant at the host home would wash the feet of the people there. And that would, be a couple, that would do a couple of things practically. I mean, besides just cleaning, cleaning their feet, it would be somewhat of a pleasant experience, I suppose, if you like uh, pedicure type things. Uh, but also it would just have the practical benefit of probably reducing the smell uh, as you're reclining, laying down or somehow kneeling by the table. You're not sitting with your feet down at the floor and everybody up here. You're all around each other. 
And so it was a necessary service, but it was a, a lowly service. You can also add to your mind, just to your thinking, think of the mechanics of how this was done. How long would it take to wash 12 people's feet or 15 or 20, however many were there? One at a time. One at a time. And dry them. And by the end, how, how, how dirty must the water be? Or did he have to change the water? And how dry or wet was the towel? And, and all of this. And how did he, were they, did they sit in a chair and he, or they were laying down and he had to, what's the mechanics of that? Just think of it. How it must have been and looked like. It didn't just take two minutes for this to happen. This was going on for minutes and minutes and minutes and minutes. And I wonder how much talking was going on during the time where they were just stunned into silence, embarrassed silence because they didn't serve the Lord as He was serving them. So when it came Peter's turn, he was the spokesman, of course, for the others, and uh, he asked the Lord a question which indicated that he would not allow the Lord to wash his feet. He, he had a, at least enough boldness to say what the others were embarrassingly realizing, that it was ridiculous that they did not offer service to the Lord and the other disciples. So Jesus' humble service now, this is number six, I think, yes, uh, offered an opportunity for him to teach two lessons to the disciples. Two lessons to the disciples. One is a little more transparent than the other, I think. But the disciples eventually got them both. The first lesson is symbolized by the foot washing comes just now. Look at verses... Uh, oh, where are we at here? Verse uh, 6, he asked them the question... Uh, or uh, Sorry, 6, Lord, are you washing my feet? Basically meaning, no, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus said, you don't know what I'm doing now. You don't understand it, but you will. Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. So he just comes right out and says it. Verse 8, Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Well, then that changed Peter's mindset because if he has no part with Jesus without a foot washing, he's like, man, you know, wash my head too. My hands and you know, face and everything else. Might as well. I'd like, I want to have, you know, you could see Peter had this zeal. Like, I don't want you to do this to me, Lord, but if, okay, if you have to do it, then do the whole thing because I really want to be with you. You know, you have to appreciate his, his, his zeal for the Lord. Um, and so, the Lord teaches them in this context, in verse 10, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean. And you are clean, but of course not all of you. So he makes the distinction here between a bath and a foot washing. Okay, Notice that he says, he who is bathed, who is washed you know, completely, needs only to wash his feet. And those are two different verbs in the Greek text. And I think the difference, I know the difference is significant. He's making a significance between that difference. A bath or a shower has one purpose and a foot washing or we might you know, think of it differently today like washing our hands. You do that multiple times a day and it's got a different purpose than taking your shower in the morning or in the evening whenever you take your shower, bath. 
Jesus told Peter that the one who is bathed, that means saved or cleansed, forgiven of sin, only needs to have his feet washed. Peter wants to carry it a bit farther so that he can have a, a better relationship with the Lord. But salvation is not a repeated activity. Not a repeated activity. Rather, the foot washing is the repeated activity. It's a figure of the type of regular cleansing that you need day by day. The foot washing is a symbol of daily cleansing from sin. 1 John 1, 7. 1 John 1, 7. It says to us that we are continuously cleansed from sin. Let me just read the verse to you. 1 John 1.7 If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses, present tense, us from all sin. Cleanses us, present tense, from all sin. Okay, so you have the ongoing cleansing from sin and you have the one-time cleansing, the bath, which is different than the foot washing. So when the, the bath occurs, you are washed clean of the guilt and power of sin. When you have your feet washed, symbolically speaking of the continual cleansing, then you have your present sins, your recent sins washed and cleansed and your relationship with the Lord is brought back to a full harmonious kind of status. So there's a difference between the two kinds of forgiveness. This, by the way, is a struggle for some people. They say, well, if all my sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, what do I have to worry about? You have to worry about the aspect of your sin that has to do with your ongoing relationship with the Lord. This forgiveness is legal, judicial, forensic. It establishes your relationship with the Lord. This bathing, this foot washing, forgiveness, is that which goes on and on and on and continues to cleanse and strengthen your relationship with the Lord. Both are necessary. You can't dispense with this one just because you say you have this one. The Bible is very clear about that. If you don't have this ongoing cleansing, what did the Lord say to Peter? If I don't wash your feet, what? You don't have any part with me. So if you don't care about this, that means this has probably not happened in your life. You see? So people who don't care about their ongoing sin, that's a very serious issue that indicates that they might not understand about the very beginning of and the bathing that is necessary for salvation. Now, uh, also, that, that's the more or the less transparent of the lessons. The more transparent of the lessons is this, that Jesus' humble service was designed as an example for the disciples. And this is the final point. This is in verses 12 to 17. So when he had washed their feet, you know, he went back and sat down at the table, reclined there, and asked, do you know what I've done to you? I can imagine between 12 and 13, there must be a silence. I mean, you almost could put a little brackets in there like, wait for answer one minute until everybody is uncomfortable. Then verse 13, you know? Yeah. Um, Jansen has told me this in his Sunday school class. He probably won't mind if I share this with you. Sometimes he'll ask a question and uh, if 
and the only people in the class at the moment are the shy ones, he says to me, you know, I can wait. You know, he says, to them, I can wait. You've heard that be, had that happen before with a teacher in class, right? Um, so trying to elicit a response from their students. Got all the time in the world, so to speak. So he, he, he asked them, do you know what I've done? Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet... If the, this is an argument of greater to lesser now. Okay? If I, the greater, have washed your feet, what should you do who are the lesser? The lesson is pretty transparent here. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus is the master. Those are the servants, the disciples. So you have a great master giving humble service for humble disciples. Giving them an example that these humble disciples should offer likewise humble service to their fellow humble servants. We're not greater than the one who sent us. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So if you don't do them, what does that mean? You're not going to be blessed. Seems to me very transparent as well. He wanted them to understand what He had done for them. He gave them a model, a pattern, a type, an example to follow, to imitate. Now, this is not a, an ordinance. Okay? This is not an ordinance. I don't want to get too much into the polemic of, you know, the, of an anti-ordinance speech here in the church. We have two ordinances, the Lord's baptism and the Lord's table given to us that symbolize saving truths of the Gospel. It is, this, ordin- this example is not an ordinance, but it's a divinely ordained pattern not carried out by actual foot washing in our context because that is not a needed form of service. Are you with me? You don't do a foot washing today because it's not necessary. You don't do an unnecessary act to try to show how spiritual you are. Does that make sense? You people all have regular access to running hot and cold water and your own baths and showers and all of that. You, you wear closed shoes most of the time. We're in a climate we don't have dirty roads and all, all those things. So you don't do unnecessary things to follow the example of the Lord. It's not a service to do an unneeded ritual. There are other forms of service So many different ones that you probably can think of where fellow believers need help with something that it fits, this example fits all of those different activities. Those things that are necessary. you with me? So, because the circumstances are different, the way that we implement the example of the Lord of humble service is through humble service in other ways than foot washing. you with me? We're not trying to say the Bible is irrelevant or we're changing the terms or anything like that. We're saying, yes, the times have changed, the culture has changed, the footwear has changed, the plumbing has changed. You know, the hygiene, the ease with which we can achieve hygiene today is much different than it was back then. It's unnecessary for us to do foot washing. But that doesn't mean that humble service is unnecessary. Humble service may well 
very well be called for to care for a relative who is dying, to help a fellow believer who's having trouble with something, to clean the toilets in the church, <laughs> you know, all kinds of things that are humble service. And we should not, you know, look down our nose at those things as if they're below us as believers. That should not be the case. The most important pastor, elder, deacon, uh, church member should be ready, willing, and able and active about doing humble service for their fellow believers. Okay, Without <laughs> complaining, certainly, and without arguing with one another about who's the greatest. <laughs> what a contrast. That's what the Lord is teaching us today. Humble service from humble servants to humble servants. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for this morning's message and for the the truths that we learned from John 13, the opening verses there. Guide us, I pray, about it and, and help us to see where service is needed in our own lives and families and church and everything. And Lord, for those who are having some difficulty, I pray that You'd help the needs that they have to become known somehow to maybe individual believers privately and they can just take care of the needs without having to bring them to the attention of the more broad public gathering of the church. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.